Hi, I'm Susanna Cass. I live in Cambridge in the UK and I go by the title of The Boatnest. Hello and welcome to the Steady State Podcast, your rowing fix, where the water is always flat, the catches are clean, and you can always hear the coxswain. We're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates the expansive array of rowers, coaches, and coxswains in a podcast designed to savor real-life experience from launch to coxie at every level. We're Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan, and this is Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode with Aisha Rafai. In 2016, she made history when she became Singapore's first rower to qualify for the Olympics. The path she took to get there was driven by a competitive spirit, passion for sports, health, and fitness, and punctuated by injuries, losses, and some disappointment. Today, she's pursuing a master's degree with the goal of becoming an athlete counselor. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, could you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. We're really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. And we really like to look outside the standard pipeline and the generic rowing narrative. Today, we're talking with Susanna Cass, a scientist interested in plants and other wildlife whose love of messing about in boats has brought her on adventures crossing seas and oceans. Susanna learned to row at university and hasn't looked back and is now looking for new ways to link her love of boats and biodiversity. Susanna, thanks so much for chatting with us today. No worries. Um, I am honored to be asked. (laughs) Yeah, we've been really interested in the sorts of things that you're involved with and really want to talk with you today about your experience rowing, your experiences as a rowing adventurer, and then also all the amazing expeditionary work that you've been doing and and the science work that you've been doing. I think when Tara first spotted you, that's what really set off a light bulb for her first is that here's someone who's doing all these amazing things together and combined. And so we've got some uh, some questions for you about, about all of that and what brought you to where you are today. Sounds great. Yeah. When I first reached out to you, you said, I don't, what do you say? Something about, I don't have stories to tell, or I'm not a good storyteller or something like that. I was like, okay, we'll see. We'll see. I bet you got some. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> I've got my rowing, rowing mug. What does that say? What does that, what say? Does that say? It sort of says, rah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's a, it's a Cambridge mug, obviously. Oh, excellent. <laughs> What's in uh, the mug, most importantly? Uh, fruit tea. Yeah. Oh. Living the high life. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's nine o'clock in the morning, my time. And... 12 o'clock in the afternoon, Rachel's time, and yeah. five, five o'clock for 5 you? 5 p.m. in the afternoon, yeah, yeah, yep. covered everything. Yeah, so Pretty we've much. covered the whole span of the day already. Um, <laughs> so, so Tara and I are really interested in backstories, you know, the experiences that kind of bring us to, to where we are today, and before we kind of get all into that, I think we're just kind of curious about 
how's your week going? <laughs> Not so bad. I think we're coming out of the the post Christmas slump. Um, yeah, it's been nice to have a bit more stuff going on. I've just come back from um, a nice long cycle. The weather's just really improved today here. We've had what for the UK is quite freezing temperatures for a week or so. Um, yeah. So now it's the sun's come out and it was good to get out on the bike for a nice long spin. Yeah, that kind of thing. It's good. And then, um, so I do some environmental science lecturing, but it's all obviously all been online for the last year or so. So new terms started with that and getting back to whatever normal is these days. Yeah, whatever it is these days. I saw in your feed, you were on your Instagram feed, you were doing some open water swimming. We've been out in the, in the yeah. water. Yeah, it was uh, last out on Friday. Going to go again on Wednesday. Um, yeah, I can't decide if that's a sign of really finally having cracked or <laughs> or if it's a great idea, but it's it's invigorating, that's for sure. <laughs> Is yeah. this something that you've done for a long time in this sort of weather? Um, I'd say no, but also it it would not be a weird thing for my family to do occasionally. So if we're on holiday in February, it would not be strange of us if we happen to be near a beach to kind of running and out of the water but yeah, yeah. I never really thought of it as being uh, an, a thing of like outdoor actual outdoor cold water swimming or anything like that it was just well you know go for a swim <laughs> yeah um, it's, it's worth it yeah. yeah I've heard it's very refreshing yeah oh yeah afterwards I mean literally I'm in for like three minutes and that's it it's oh. not not going doing lengths or anything but, but you're not swimming uh, the channel <laughs> yeah no not that not yet <laughs> but um there you go. yeah then you feel great afterwards so um I first found you on Instagram and I don't know why you came across my feed probably because you had hashtag rowing in there or something <laughs> and what I loved about your when I was like Ooh, what is this because I'm a naturalist geek myself and when I teach rowing I teach uh, masters learn to row and I really prided myself on being able to point out, you know, the plants or the animals that were out there. And, and that really enhanced their experience uh, out on the water. It took away the pain, I think, of learning to row and <laughs> a little bit. Um, but I love that quote, the messing around in boats, you know, from the wind in the willows. And then where else would you find someone who's a naturalist rower adventurer, you know, and the fact that you put it all together in this website, um, Rachel uh, pointed out to me that you also had yourself listed as a science lover and an accidental athlete dynamically risk assessing my way through life so what do you mean by accidental athlete I, I think the classic story that I think applies to a lot more rowers than you might think that I'm not very sporty at school other than having a height advantage, which is always useful. Um, I lived, uh, so I grew up in Walton-on-Thames, which is a sort of bit of the UK that's surrounded by some of the, it's not far from Dorney Lake. Um, some of the big boat clubs are on the River Thames nearby. The Thames ran through our, just about ran through our local town. Um, and I managed to just kind of just miss rowing at so many opportunities. Like we didn't have it at school. Um, that was not, keen on PE at school didn't particularly like do much other sport and um yeah I just eventually found it at university but I'm not very coordinated <laughs> I have terrible balance <laughs> I definitely sport. yeah always feel that of the yeah the rowing when I found it was like this is the one this is the sport for me um but 
who, yeah, feel like I almost found it by accident and that uh, if I hadn't, then um, it definitely started me down paths of all sorts of things that I would probably never have done otherwise, because I would have probably been more into theater or something like that and 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 just taken a completely different route um which ultimately may not have like led to being able to go and travel and do the expeditions and things as well so I'm very lucky and it does feel accidental <laughs> that's awesome so what um how did you fall into it at university and what what kind of got you there in the boathouse so um, I went to uh, Cambridge, sort of applied um, to one of the colleges here in Cambridge, where I'm sort of back living now. And admittedly, that's an easy accident. It's it's quite hard to get through a whole Cambridge degree without getting dragged to the boathouse at least once. Mm-hmm. So um, that bit was, was not so hard. It was fairly inevitable that at some point I'd try rowing. Um, I signed up as a novice and did all that sort of wonderful winter, freezing cold mornings. Everything's just a river traffic jam. You don't get to go anywhere. There's so many boat clubs here. We're not allowed to row in the dark as as um, the academic crews. So there's very little time before lectures in the morning. And I kind of liked it. I really liked the, the women that I was rowing with and the wider college club. But I was pretty convinced by Christmas that it was probably not for me. I don't really like mornings. I don't like getting up early. And Mm. I was definitely going to quit and do something else in January. Um, And then our um, lower boats captain, so the students from the year above us who were teaching us to row, did a really clever really clever piece of like man management that I've remembered ever since and like always thought that was a move of genius. So they emailed all of our novice crew in independently and said like we're very impressed with with you and we we would like you to come and be in the in the senior boat next term and they were like oh this is very exciting <laughs> but oh, you do maybe think- I'm maybe I'm better than I thought and then we all turned up on that first day back after Christmas and it was just the same beginner boat <laughs> and we were just we'd just been renamed basically and uh yeah we found ourselves a few weeks later racing the women's head of the river on the tideway in London we didn't even know that boats came apart uh we came ridiculously slow we were like 200 300th or something like that um we were just genuinely proud to have got to the finish line without sinking and things like that but it was I was hooked from then on so having got me back in a boat after Christmas they they that was it and there was sort of no looking back after that wow so they have a, a captain's model yeah so because they're college boat because there's so many colleges there's like 31 colleges so there's loads of these fairly small college boat clubs um so they're very student run um new captains new committees each year and it is a sort of it's a fun cycle of people teaching people that learned to row last year teaching people to row this year <laughs> so sometimes it's a bit interesting with the progress that's made um, so, but so yeah. I see that you you actually became a captain yeah so the following year from that point on I got so hooked that it was a good distraction from studies so they kind of didn't have anyone from slightly more senior group that wanted to be captain of boats that year so I kind of got that little idea in the back of my head and thought about it for a while I was like if they'll let me maybe I maybe I could do it I could give it a go I like organizing things um and I was basically a bit astonished to 
to be told that that was fine and I was allowed to. <laughs> I was like, you, you know, I don't know much about rowing yet. I'm basically still a novice. Um, but yeah, I went with it and it turned out, I found out sort of halfway through the year, I think, when I was sort of reading through the boat club archives that um, I sort of found this history book. We've got a history of Magdalen Boat Club that went from 1828 when it was founded to 1928. Haven't written the next one yet, but we're going to. And we found that um, George Mallory, who is the Everest mountaineer, had been captain of boats at Magdalen and in the the his term had been exactly 100 years before before mine and I was like that is awesome that is some amazing footsteps to follow in oh Um, wow yeah and another adventurer exactly yeah yeah that was cool to yeah find that little link and a bit of inspiration I think I think the system that you've described about the captains and moving um you know incrementally year over year and taking over and starting to starting to teach uh, and coach the younger rowers or new rowers is brilliant. Um, it who wouldn't want to be um, taught by their peers? I actually think that's a great idea because sometimes that leap between the new rower and a coach who can seem like they're so much older and so you know dis. Um, I don't know, it's just so much older and, and separate from you. Um, I, I think that's such an interesting idea. I didn't actually realize that's how it, it functioned there. And no, it makes sense. It gets you involved and then you want to teach others. And, and the cycle has continued successfully for a very long time there. Very yeah, long. for a really long time. And, yeah. it, and it means you can have the mass participation. It's what sort of makes it possible for almost everyone to get in a boat at some point whilst they're yeah. there because you can have five or six different novice eights going out for a term and even if they just do it for a term they've got a they've had a go yeah. so when you first started rowing and maybe even into your more advanced rowing was there a portion of the stroke that you found challenging or that was kind of your thing that you were always working on you know the the cat somewhere in the catch or the rushing or what was your thing that that kind of defined you as both your your challenge and your strength as a rower uh probably all of it (laughs) so again it's that not very coordinated um kind of idea uh so yeah trying to get the finer details of everything I I know I struggled a lot with which I think helps in coaching as well to know that it, it didn't come particularly easily um I am I am pretty tall so I could sit on an erg from fairly on, early on and not do too badly I wouldn't say I've ever had like amazing erg times but as a complete beginner it was sort of I could I could do fine um and yeah I think I got the I think I understood what I was aiming for quite easily maybe partly a bit of a sort of sciencey brain that sort of logical the physics of it I guess always made sense and then it was just trying to trying to actually get the proprioception and trying to actually make my body do what I was trying to tell it to do so I often found it very frustrating but but still rewarding because it's you frustrate yourself but you get to come back again tomorrow and you get to like see your own progress it's it's not the same as being frustrated because you didn't score a, a goal in a match of some sort of field game because that could happen every single time. But at least you will always improve a little bit. Yeah. And, and these were all in, in uh, sweep boats in eights. 
Yeah. So again, yeah. most of the most of the you know, college rowing here is in eights for practicality. More people on the water, uh, more efficiently, and yeah, small boat rowing is is unusual in Cambridge. <laughs> Yeah. So you said after your first year, um, you know, you got this invitation from the upperclassmen um, inviting you, and then you felt you got, you felt like maybe you got a little hoodwinked, right? You were surprised. Oh, well, well, we all got invited back, but you've got this nice support from from those rowers. Did you early on in those first couple of years have uh, specific teammates or coaches that you felt really supported you? Definitely. So. A, we had that really nice group of um, women who'd all started together. It was a nice mix because there were some postgraduates as well as most, most of us were undergraduates, but there was quite a big age range still. So it was a really diverse group that we wouldn't have probably met each other in college otherwise. Um, and because we all carried on, um, we sort of stuck together as a really good crew, effectively for the whole three years of my undergraduate degree, even though... Um, a few of us then went on to row for the university for some of that last year. Um, so that was great. And then in my second year as captain, we employed uh, an actual, a real coach, a grown-up coach um, who sort of coached all of the um, all of the boats for the college, but focused on the the, the women, the top women's eight and the top men's eight, um, called Andy Neild. And he was just an amazing coach. He was very made everything very simple and very clear. He was just just naturally really good at it and would also you'd sort of not even classic coach who didn't even notice was coaching you you'd just be laughing at the fact that he was doing skids on his mountain bike on the on the on the towpath because he'd got a bit bored but actually you'd come in from a session and realize how much you learned um so he was great and then we had because I guess there's a really strong alumni network as well with all these college clubs with so many people who've been involved one way or another yeah. um, the president of our club at the time Richard Hammersley um, was one of those sort of stalwarts who'd always come back he'd always be there if he had a free weekend he'd be on the towpath taking taking photos of all the races uh, he lived in Henley so that was very useful so if we had training camps there or racing there he'd always be out supporting and he it was probably like partly down to him encouraging um, there were three of us in that sort of year group, um, myself, Hermione and Jenny, who decided to go and have a go at the, the trials for the university team. And I think without him sort of going like, girls, I know you haven't rode for very long, but you're doing really well. You should, you should go and have a go at this. Um, I'm not sure I would have thought about going for those trials and for the development squad. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I think those those that sort of three different aspects of it really kind of kept me loving it and gave me the courage to try and go a bit further with it as well. It sounds like you've had a really nice trajectory of being mentored and then getting to mentor. So there's like this passing on and and I think that's so great in rowing because there's so much we could impart to people behind us and we're all such evangelists for the sport. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Like we can't shut up about it. Like we're so into the sport. Um, so this blue boat, this Cambridge women's blue boat. So tell us about that. What was that experience like and, and how did that occur? It was um, it was an interesting experience and it was probably quite different from what people see nowadays, especially. It was 
a reasonable time ago now. Um, so the, it started with signing up to do a development squad over the summer, which was just nice to row with people from different colleges to get out to Ely sometimes. So the River Cam gets super congested and is quite windy and narrow out in Ely, um, which is actually where the boat races are going to be rowed this year because of everything else that's going on. Um, it's a really useful bit of water, but it's it's super straight in extremely flat monotonous fen land that goes on for miles but it's good water to go out to so I learned a lot on that development squad and then yeah I thought confident enough to come back and start the year off as a trialist and yeah it was a, a massive step up from everything I knew in terms of training like actually doing weights training was something I'd never done before um rowing most mornings of the week um, and obviously going out to Ely you have to get up at sort of not long after four cycle down to the train station get a train out to Ely run around the corner to the to the boathouse get on the water get a session done and then get back get the train back and get to lectures for 9 a.m so it was always wow. it was always a mad rush I don't really know how we ever managed to get actual training done it felt like we were on the water for a long time each time but we can't have been for particularly long and yeah it is like completely take took over my life but in, in a good way I sort of made the decision that that year was going to be rowing for as long as I was in the squad um and and my study and wouldn't be much time for social life or anything else like that but that was kind of fine uh, especially because there were three of us from college doing it together. We actually all lived on the same staircase that year, which made things like getting up in the morning slightly less stressful. If you knew there would always be two other people to check you hadn't missed your alarm. <laughs> yeah, That was quite good. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was really intense. Um, and ultimately, then the, the women's boat race then was in Henley. So it was before it moved on to the, the tidal Thames in London. It's a much shorter course. We weren't allowed to use the full even the full length of the Henley regatta course um, it happens with the stream rather than against the stream the finish line is a hidden behind Temple Island so your spectators on the bank can't even actually really see the finish line it was I mean I think if we, we didn't win um, and if we had one I suppose I might have slightly different feelings about it it was a little bit of an anticlimax <laughs> after a year of training and, and especially knowing that we were training alongside the men um, probably our program wasn't as developed as theirs at that point particularly in in terms of the club but we were still training very hard we were training the, the sort of same number of days of the week and as, as nearly as hard um, and yet we had this sort of slightly strange little mini race that was just suddenly over and that was that so uh, yeah I have sort of mixed feelings about that and mm -hmm. I am also um envious and extremely pleased for for the women that get and the lightweights now that get to have that much bigger experience of rowing on on the tideway yeah that that feeling that you said about you know you put in all this effort didn't win the race you know this is something that happens with a lot of athletes we've talked to some Olympians who have this feeling they put in four years of effort and then, you know, walk away because, you know, they haven't won a medal. And what, what do you do with that? All that feeling and all that intensity. And really that's a chapter that ends and you have to decide what comes next. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Steady State Network and on Twitter at Steady State Row. 
Sign up for our e-newsletter and become a patron at SteadyStateNetwork.com. And we're back with Susanna Cass, The Boat Nest. So uh, after 09, you're still with Dublin University, is that right? The yes. Boat Club? Yeah, so from that point, um, I'd finished my degree, couldn't really decide what to do next. I'd studied natural sciences, had, didn't have an immediate, like, absolutely, this is what I want to go straight into. So I decided I wanted to study more of that kind of thing. Um, and I'd applied to quite a few places to do conservation biodiversity type master's degrees. And I remember <laughs> sitting at Henley Women's Regatta and going through my checklist of my shortlisted universities that I had good courses that I wanted to do and checking out what their their lycra colors were and their blade colors <laughs> and I wouldn't say it was a like the major point of my decision but there was an element of my decision of which of these I would actually really want to go to that was based on mm, I don't think I like those colors or those are pretty cool and so Dublin University ladies row in in black with a really cool bright pink and white sort of striped hoops um which I thought was awesome and I didn't own any kit that color and I was like yeah that, that'll be good that'd be nice and it would be nice to go and live in another country as well so I ended up over there um, and just sort of went straight in as a rower I'd contacted the boat club before I even moved over there so I was uh, already moving in with with one of the rowers who had um, a spare room that they were looking to rent to someone. It was just down the path, even not even a road, really, just just around the corner from the boathouse. So I definitely went there jointly for the purpose of studying the next stage in, in the sciencey type stuff I wanted to do, but also definitely going there for the next stage of rowing as well. So how did you become an adventurer? Again, it's not accidental, but <laughs> I certainly didn't set out to do it. Um, I, I think the first real bit, I'm trying to remember actually what order it happened in. So I think the, the actual first thing that happened was I just saw an advert on Facebook for a, an all women's team that were trying to put a, a four women crew together to row across the Pacific Ocean. Um, and they were based in the UK and they were um, looking for that, that fourth final teammate. So they were almost doing kind of auditions in Henley for that teammate position. And I sort of saved that post or something like that and, and sort of tried not to think about it for a while and got closer and closer to the deadline when they were asking for applications by. And I was sat um, outside the boat club in Blessington Lake, which was sort of where we rode out of outside of Dublin at the weekends. And I remember sitting there in the rain in the car thinking, should I apply for this? Mm, yeah, what should I do? Should I, should I apply? Should I not apply? Um, and obviously I, I decided I would, I'd, I'd like, well, what can go wrong? I'll just, I'll go to Henley for a weekend. It'll be nice. I'll meet some people and learn a bit more about it. And then from that, um, I did some of the, the training that was required for the Great Pacific Race with them. Um, eventually, as often happens, the, the team, different people had different commitments. Some people had sort of different nerves about different parts of it. Um, people's situations changed and that original team actually sort of disintegrated a bit. Um, 
but I'd sort of committed by that point. I'd told people that I was going to do ocean rowing <laughs> and partly, again, out of sort of fear of the embarrassment of, of having told everyone I was going to do it and, and then ending up not doing it, I decided I'd try and find another crew that still needed a team member. Um, so I contacted the race organisers and just asked them if they had anyone who was struggling to to find a final team member. And they pointed me to a crew of three men that were looking for a fourth person. And so I sort of said, mm, we'll have a chat on Skype, see if we get on. And we did, it was fine. They all seemed perfectly nice, nothing, nothing too dodgy or scary. And um, I sort of signed up and said, yeah, go on, go for it. Um, and they didn't really know each other either. So they were, three other individuals that had decided they wanted to do the race but didn't have a team to put together themselves. Um, one was from Australia and the other two were from opposite sides of the States. We, yeah, we sort of met briefly to do our little training row where the boat we were using was currently stored in Florida. Um, did a row along the coast, came into Cape Canaveral in the middle of the night, just narrowly avoiding um, some cruise ships and things coming in and out that probably would have squished us if we'd been half an hour later um, and that was it and then um, a few months later two months later I guess we were sat on the start line and about to head out to the ocean so <laughs> I wasn't about, quite sure um, that happened so we're talking about the great pacific race right of 2014 and yes, um, right. this is from Monterey, California to Oahu, Ohio, uh, Ohio, Oahu, Hawaii. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the, it is. The very uh, exciting Oahu, Ohio. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So can you tell us uh, how far is that row if everything goes well? And what was your actual track like? And how far did you end up rowing? Um, so it's sort of advertised <laughs> as um, about 2,400 nautical miles. Um, and those are a bit, a little bit longer than sort of land miles. Um, so yeah, a long way. Um, uh, the, in, um, and then you, the, you always have to sort of do a kind of hockey shaped curve because the currents down the Californian coast drag you south quite a lot and it takes quite a lot to break away from those and break off the continental shelf and then start heading out uh, towards Hawaii and um, we made it longer for ourselves in the first few days by um, having a few technical hiccups uh, I was to say we weren't necessarily so it's not a great advertisement for ocean rowing but we weren't hugely well prepared well we were we'd done we'd done the training we had the all the right equipment and stuff but we were a bit last minute about everything. Uh, we literally had a, a like a box of pizza thrown to us from from the dock as we were pushing off. Uh, we, we stopped the minute we got past the start line just to unpack everything and repack everything um, to get going. And then we had an issue with our navigation <laughs> within Monterey Bay um, where we'd, we had, so we had a little, um, links in the science again we had a little pump fitted that was doing salinity surface salinity monitoring um, linked up with some scientists who were um, sort of do, doing sort of ground truthing of satellite data um, looking at surface salinity so we had this little pump and it had a satellite phone aerial um, that was 
supposed to be transmitting night and day this data from this little tiny mini pump. The problem is it had been fitted inside the cabin just behind our compass, which seemed fine. It was neat out of the way, but we didn't realize that this aerial was basically just a giant magnet that we just attached right next to our compass. So we couldn't work out why it felt like we were going around in circles, but the compass said we were going straight. And then we'd also managed to, I don't even know how, but there was a, a bit of damage on the uh, cabling for the aerial for our GPS and chart plotter and stuff as well. So that was cutting in and out. And we literally, we managed 24 hours and we we phoned the race organizer. And we're like, it's all going wrong. Like the support boat came and sailed past us. And we're like, are oh, you all right? What's going on? Um, and we, yeah, we, we rode north when we were supposed to be going south. And wow. we, yeah, did basically a full tourist lap of Monterey Bay before we <laughs> found the magnet and moved it and taped up the, the damage to the cable. We got the chart plotter working and everything. And then finally actually set off in the right direction yeah. so we were we were a bit behind before we even started and we were pretty slow the whole way across as well but. so I was going to ask you you know so you you shove off uh, you know away from uh, from the dock in Monterey like what are you feeling you know what are all those feelings and you were just saying it was hectic and it was a crazy crazy first 24 hours so you get everything set you think everything's you know ready to go and you can just get to the work of rowing. So maybe that's day two. So day two, you start rowing and you know where you're going, you're going in the right direction. What are you feeling at that point, knowing what's out ahead? I'm fairly horrified. Because <laughs> I, I, in in theory, we knew what was ahead, but none of us had ever done it before. Um, we had lots of sort of fears and expectations, anticipations of some good things, some bad things. We didn't know how bad the weather was gonna get. Um, you hear all the sort of amazing, but also horror stories from previous rows, like the uh, James Cracknell, Ben Fogle rowing the Atlantic and pitch pole capsizing and all sorts of crazy things like that. So we're like, maybe this is inevitable. Maybe at some point this is going to happen to us. Um, I get really seasick um, for, for, a, for a few days. It does eventually go away and then I'm fine. But um, yeah, so I was feeling pretty horrible. Uh, it was cold. It was not the nicest. Like it was cloudy. It was overcast. Um, at night, it was very, very cold. So in the four-man boats, you have a little cabin each end. So you'd have a cabin to yourself. Um, but that's even it's tent-sized. Like if if you're if you're there and you you haven't really you don't bring big warm sleeping bags or anything because you're going to Hawaii. Um, so at night, it was. I remember wrapping up in an emergency blanket at night, just trying to stay warm. Um, wow. And on deck in the middle of the night, you said we were rowing um, two hour shifts, three hour shifts, two hour shifts. I can't even remember. That's how good it was. But basically on off 24 hours a day um, and in the middle of the night, sort of just stopping to make tea because we genuinely felt we were getting hypothermic, just we needed something hot in us. Um, so that's day two. What's what's day, you know, 29 like? <laughs> I think that may have carried on to day 29. Definitely. <laughs> this was, this went on for a long time, or at least it felt like eternity. Um, we had some fairly bad weather, not not desperate bad weather, but we, enough that we stopped for a while and used the parachute anchor that sort of keeps you in, stops you drifting, basically. It doesn't really completely stop you, but it means you're lined up with the waves. So we had... Uh, 24 36 hours of not even trying to row because the the waves were were pretty bad 
um and then we sort of plodded on again um and it was it was it was weeks like that really before we finally kind of got out into the mid ocean the sort of short sharp coastal waves died down the weather got nicer everything warmed up then it got too hot obviously but um we saw yeah the nice blue pacific ocean with the sun shining like we just expected um and then it was then it was almost pleasant for a while apart from the fact that our water maker had broken by that oh. point <laughs> oh my god so were yeah. you in, were you in contact with your family by the, the satellite phones and and things like that yeah so we had a um yeah we'd um get reports in from the race organizers and then we had the satellite phone that we'd thrown back home not too often but from time to time we could it'd be like if we needed to if we wanted to so I think my parents got quite a few this is the worst thing in the world why am I doing this kind of calls especially at the at the start and then towards the end when it sort of got slow again and it felt like we were perhaps never ever going to make it there as well wow when Amazing. you uh you said the weather changed you see the pacific the you know the color of the water is beautiful it warms up was there a time where you ever got out of the boat and went for a little swim we did yeah um two of the the guys duncan and john were super keen like very they mad keen swimmers um so they more they they swam more times and um what you have to do is clear the barnacles off the base of the boat to stop you slowing down so they grow surprisingly quickly um so they did most of that but um we all went for swims pretty much midway um and it was i think one of the best feelings of my my entire life ever i you haven't washed really in weeks um it's you just like hair that's so matted you could just stand it upright it's so disgusting and just to topple off the side of the boat with a mask on and suddenly find yourself in like nice temperature water was absolutely incredible and I thought it would be terrifying I was a I was quite nervous before jumping off and I have like I've always loved but been terrified of sharks to the extent that I, as a kid I'd look for them at the bottom of the swimming pool before checking <laughs> before getting in um, and it turned out actually I was once I was in the water there I just wasn't at all afraid you look down and you expect it to be dark but actually there's just the light pouring in the, it, it's just light you just see bright blue all the way down um, and it it was it was really incredible and just amazing to think uh, how deep the water was how far from land and other people we were and I guess I probably I would imagine it's correct to say that the idea that we're probably the only people ever that will swim at that exact spot was just sort of a mind-blowing kind of wow we're actually out here in the in the absolute middle of nowhere and the chances that anyone else will ever swim here in the whole history of humans is so minuscule that it'll probably never happen like, wow, wow. Yeah. yeah so we you had had um a whole university sequence as a as a natural in the natural sciences and then gone on to to get to your master's degree how did that factor in like one of the things i find fascinating about these expeditions that you've been on and and reading about them and actually having signed up for a couple myself and and been part of a couple in the planning i've never actually executed don't get too excited i've never actually executed but we each brought 
to the table, kind of like an Ocean's Eleven. Have you seen that movie where there's like, you know, there's the contortionist, there's the con artist, there's the, you know, the people, they bring their skills and their skill set. And so I think about these adventures, these expeditions, and what do you think, and you've gone on to do many more since then. So obviously you, you've enjoyed the, the experience. What would you say your your contribution is? Is it the science aspect? Is it the mindset? Do you have a, a lot of really good knock-knock jokes? Do you have like, you know, just absolute put your head down? So like, what are your, what's your go-to uh, that you bring to these expeditions, do you think? Um, I'd say definitely I sort of always jokingly get referred to as like science officer or something like that which in the day-to-day -day of the of the rowing expeditions is not very much it's just spotting the sargassum seaweed and trying to bore everyone to death with how that might be where baby eels live for parts of their life cycle or um, trying to remember which type of direction of whale spout means which species and stuff like that but it's for the most part of those not um not sort of hardcore science data collection because you're spending 99 percent of your time just trying to survive and keep moving um but we have done uh, i've tried to sort of keep bringing some elements of it so um doing microplastic sampling from the water again you're in places that no one else is going to visit very often so if you can bring back a sample of something that could be really useful um, that's been really interesting so we've worked with um, a, a venture scientist for conservation a few times um, on that that kind of thing as well um, and then sort of bringing those stories back sort of knowing a little bit about I wouldn't even say I'm an expert on any of these things but knowing a, a bit and having read a bit about the history of natural science in these areas. So like Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle followed a relatively similar route at the beginning to our Atlantic row. And just sort of knowing what he'd written about saying, uh, seeing through the Atlantic Ocean and being able to compare that with with the, the life or in some cases, sadly, lack of life that we were seeing in the oceans, the fewer fish, fewer birds, fewer whales, that kind of thing was, uh, has always sort of been the bit that interests me most and the bit that I I think I'd love to to, to be better <laughs> at sort of sharing that experience as well but I think that's the bit that sort of kept bringing me back to those kind of things and apart from that I think I'm quite I'm just quite tolerant as well I seem to be able to put up with suffering reasonably well and stay quite calm and yeah not not flip out at people too much so I think as far as actual expedition skills that's probably my best expedition skill <laughs> just being yeah. calm <laughs> yeah, my, my only experience with having seen that process is it uh, you probably know them the uh, the losing sight of shore gals yes yeah yeah and and there's a documentary on Netflix that I hope we'll, we'll put a link to in the show notes called losing sight of shore and I watch, you watch how they go through the process of choosing the people um, and the factors that they say, ah, well, this person would be good for this reason. And this person has this skill and, you know, the, uh, you know, a sense of humor. And then there was even like psychological testing to make sure that they wouldn't go crazy, you know, during this voyage, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, so I just think you find it fascinating. It's like, if you had to put together your adventure resume to be 
recruited for a team, you know, which what, what any of us would put on it. Like, you know, I can provide sense of humor. I can row for 20 hours straight or, you know, that's yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think probably references from your, from your previous adventure mates is probably the most useful of all of those as well. If they're still talking to you at the end, then it might yeah. be okay to go again. <laughs> yeah. What do you, what do you think that they would say about you? Like in a reference about you? Oh, that's actually a terrible. So um, Luke, who was one of our team for the Atlantic Row, has um, has written about part of it in uh, one of his books. He's, he does all sorts of amazing expeditions and he's covered part of it in one of his books. And I confess, I haven't actually read that, read that yet because I am a little just nervous other teammates have read and said it's a really good account of what we did so there's nothing horrible in there obviously but I am quite nervous to think of what people would would say about it but um yeah I think I think we're we're still talking so I guess I guess it all worked out quite well (laughs) yeah it's still a fond memory Um, and you do you know about um type one fun type two fun and type three fun and that type yeah. three fun is it's not fun until months later. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. And I seem to, yeah, I seem to specialize in that in these days. <laughs> I think rowing is, as far as sports go, I think rowing um, it always has that element of getting up super early in the morning, freezing your hands off if there's cold weather, training super hard. Yeah. Sorry, people say that rowers rowers are just sort of stupid enough to keep going and I think there's an element of that sort of type two or type three fun in that definitely (laughs) yeah Tara and I have talked about this a lot I think rarely while you're in it you're thinking wow this is a lot of fun all right but but that comes after in looking back at the race the adventure and the storytelling is when it's really fun Yeah. yeah being an adventurer and being someone who likes to explore What's it like being in lockdown? <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So I I am I always find it, I think career is a very a strange word to me that I've never quite sort of figured out what what it is I do and um what it is I'm likely to do next. So um until lockdown happened I was doing all sorts of things that included working in a bar at one point doing some um some lecturing at the other end of the scale, rowing coaching as well in the meantime. So basically finding jobs that fit into a 24 hour period without too much overlap. Um, I'm vaguely making something work out of that. Um, Over the last year, I've been really lucky that the, um, the lecturing or teaching has carried on. We just moved things online with all of those new challenges. Um, and I, yeah, work for a couple of universities now in, in different roles on looking at environmental science and ecology type stuff, um, which has been fine. means I can work from home, but does mean a lot of time sat at a desk. Rowing, coaching is obviously, we did have a few weeks at the start of the, the new academic year in September, October, when we did get people into boats, which was nice, but obviously most of the year it hasn't hasn't been that um so mostly I've spent my time with more more running and more cycling than I've ever done before um and and starting to just explore my local area a bit more actually and uh I always I think I sort of feel again a bit like in the sort of following in the footsteps of incredible people from the past I uh, feel a little bit like I'm following Darwin around here as well because he was an undergrad here 
for a while and was apparently completely useless at his studies. He always got distracted and would much rather go for a walk. He was supposed to be studying theology, but he just hung out with the geology professors and the zoologists all the time, walked around collecting beetles. So I've been, yeah, going for walks and exploring the local countryside and trying to find all the places that are still the same woodland as they would have been when he was here. And yeah, I guess that's something... Um, it's one of those sort of long-term wish lists that having sort of traveled some of the same routes and traveled um, on land a bit down Brazil and things like that, that it would be nice to maybe future expeditions might involve doing that a bit more purposefully, sort of revisiting some of these places, whether it's by boat or not, but comparing the modern situation with what was written about then and attempting to sort of help people understand that and show people what it's like and that kind of stuff maybe a bit as well right and show the the shift how yeah. much things have changed yeah 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 try and give that bit more of a clear idea of what that baseline was and what we're missing out on really i guess is the that's the the it's yeah i wouldn't want it to be too sort of doom and gloom based but when you get right. to especially sitting in a boat in the middle of nature experiencing that wherever you are you're kind of you're part of it in the early morning watching the birds sometimes seeing the fish that kind of things you get a quite a privileged view on it and you get to love it I think most people do sometimes we kind of forget a bit if we're racing past and not paying much attention but I guess if everyone gets that little bit of gets to see it they might get to love it a bit more and it's much easier to then try and do something to protect it and care about it. Mm-hmm. So how did you get involved with the British Exploring Society? I uh, so just after I'd pretty much finished writing up my um, my doctorate, I'd stayed in Dublin and kind of carried on through with that, carried on rowing there and, and then moved a bit more into coaching whilst I was there. Finished all that up, wasn't really sure what to do next. <laughs> Started looking at just sort of jobs lists for exciting science and that kind of things that were going on and also looking at sort of expedition lists of teammates needed and stuff and found that they take on every year um science leaders or knowledge leaders um with some levels of their own personal expedition experience to go and volunteer on these trips where we we take um 16 to 25 year olds off to experience sort of remoter parts of the world basically and um that might be for us for some of some of our participants that that might be the scottish highlands um and then all the way up to well hopefully maybe we're planning to go to namibia in the summer um, and spend five weeks living and camping and trekking through namibia a world situation dependent but um yeah and I, so I came in as a, a scientist, but with the able to have a, a, a bit of a CV that could prove that I probably would survive on an expedition for a few weeks. Uh, so the rowing trips obviously kind of got me in that door. And then the academics meant I had sort of hopefully something to, to share and, and talk about, about the biodiversity of the, the rainforest for the first two trips and then went to Iceland and then sailed back on a different type of boat, a bigger boat, a kind of pirate ship, um, tall, a tall ship, big climb the mast kind of thing. And we were 
suspending manta trawls to trawl for microplastics off of the side of the boat and, and really amazing stuff like that so yeah it's, it's wow. a really good organization I really really enjoy working with them um, and the the experience of sort of sharing the joy of people getting to see those environments for the first time is is amazing I just I'm, I'm like, very I, lucky <laughs> I'm like in the I'm like in the armchair literally like armchair travel at this point yeah. I think Tara and I are both a little quiet because we've both talked to we've talked to each other about you know I think we both have some wanderlust and it just doesn't always happen for everyone. So I think we're both a little quiet just because we're like, this is amazing that, she's <laughs> you know, and well, that, yeah, it's, it's interesting to talk with someone, um, you know, who, even if it's accidental, you've managed to set yourself up for a lifestyle that has allowed you to travel and do the work that, that you love. But I think it was interesting to hear you say that you're trying to just piece it all together so that you're making some money, you're doing what, you know, you're, you, you are creating a, a life and a schedule that allows you to do the various things that you like to do. And thanks for sharing some of your stories with us. I think we're both just a little like a little wowed by it all. <laughs> well, yeah. It, yeah. Just last night I was looking at airline tickets. I was like, I just want the feeling of buying an airline ticket. Like I just want to hit yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I find myself I just looking up routes that I could even cycle from here that I, I just I just 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 want to be allowed to go just a little bit further than the local area take my tent and just just go somewhere for a week but exactly. no, not quite yet not quite yet nearly as an adventurer it's got to be challenging to just uh, you must be doing a lot of, of fantasizing about you know different uh, ways that you can explore the world and projects I have yeah it's been nice to reflect a bit more I guess that's if you always have a new project on the horizon then you spend less time thinking about the the past things so in the way that that it's been quite good um, and I've maybe got like a few steps closer to to some of the things that I've sort of had on the back burner that I'd like to do uh, maybe writing a bit more about what I have seen and, and those kind of things and I sort of have a very vague idea maybe someone out there can can help me make it into an actual reality but that there there ought to be a, a schools rowing program that that links all the science with learning to row at the same time um, so I have talked about it a lot but never actually sat down and started writing it but I think maybe we're maybe we're getting there if this lockdown lasts much longer I might start coming up with that and maybe one day <laughs> and if anyone anyone wants to collaborate on that and actually prompt me to do it then I'd, I'd love to hear from them <laughs> well, I think it sounds very interesting and you know once you say something out loud like you said before you have to act on it exactly so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah there's that promise out um, there to the world but the, yeah, I actually, this, this notion of, um, of connecting the sciences to rowing, I mean, I've always, so I had the opportunity for a couple of seasons to coach um, some high school athletes and it's a different, um, it's different than coaching masters. The, the schedule is a little different, but I also felt that I had the opportunity if I wanted to, to kind of pull the boat aside and point something out or. There were a few opportunities. I was coaching some young girls. It was a Saturday row. And, you know, we literally just pulled over to a dock somewhere, tied up, had a snack, talked about things. And I can see that being a really interesting formula for what you're talking about, where you're in the water, you're exploring and you're rowing and sign me up. I'd do it. <laughs> cool. Good. Yeah. I think, I think there's just I, everything 
I mean, everything about everything is science. Just even the like learning a bit more about the physiology and the nutrition. There's there's one aspect that as I've learned a bit more as a coach about rigging and things like there's the physics. There's just like so many aspects of it that um, so I trained which I don't know if I should admit to, I, I trained as a, a science teacher a few a couple of years ago um, for schools, but haven't gone into school teaching from it. It's quite hard in a classroom to, to make all of the science curriculum that students have to learn apply. But if they're, if they're doing something fun at the same time and linking it with, with things all the way through, then I think, I think, I hope, I think that there's something in that. Absolutely. I mean, and, and also for masters, I know that con- matching conservation with masters rowing is a big mm. thing. Um, just even, you know, looking up and looking around when you're rowing and saying, oh, I see. And how can we steward the waterways better when we're using them so much? And um, it's kind of like Patricia Carswell's doing that uh, Rowers United uh, for the Planet. Is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah. 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 Rose United to save the planet. Yeah. Yeah. So I, lo- I love that conservation aspect for, for the grownups and, you know, and for the kids, the, the definitely like uh, STEM learning, you know, being put into place with, with Rose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we do this thing called rapid fire and all you have to do is answer the questions. It's super easy. There's no right or wrong answer. Okay. But it's, it's either or questions, okay? So the first one is port or starboard. I need that in um, in, in uh, bow side or stroke side. I can row both. Okay, bow, a bow side. I mean, we, this is you're like the fourth person that's been like bow side or stroke side. I don't know port or starboard. Okay. <laughs> I think starboard uh, is my favorite, but I can row both. Uh, okay, so bow seat or stroke seat? Uh, stroke seat. A little bit too much need for control and also I don't fit in many bow seats <laughs> okay uh okay salt water or fresh water Ooh, that's hard salt water just like ocean salt water yeah it has to be like ocean yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh head race or sprint race head race uh okay favorite coxswain command to give or receive um <laughs> easy there <laughs> um we had a for racing in the cambridge races one year but some reason we ended up with our sort of final push call being the words sticky toffee pudding on three different strokes and it worked every time <laughs> what so they would say on one stroke they say sticky and another one they'd say toffee and the other one they'd say pudding yep and, and then, everybody and knew we- the, the speed up that was needed would happen and that was it we we won everything based oh, on that's that excellent. i love the alliteration i'm so curious what the backstory is to that it was usually uh it was based on that being one of our favorite like pre-race crew crew meal desserts and that we'd often have one waiting for us back in the boathouse at the end of it so it was go faster and we'll get it sooner <laughs> yeah that's excellent okay so for rowing uh unisuit or tank and trow uni suit but often rolled down okay and then we talked a lot about early mornings and getting to the boathouse really early coffee before or after both <laughs> all of the coffee <laughs> all of the i coffee. actually sometimes i get in trouble i sometimes if we're going for a long ut2 type training spin i do i sometimes bring a coffee flask in the boat <laughs> we won't tell anyone it's not the worst thing for you you know it, it's uh, hydrating there's caffeine 
it's all right. Well, Susanna, this has been more than lovely. Um, if, uh, if we could do this again and, and, uh, it'd be so fun to just hear more about what happens for you and, and what adventures come up for you. And we're just, we're huge fans. So thank you so much. That would be absolutely awesome. It's been, been really nice chatting to you. Thank you. Thanks. And we'll check, we'll check in with you and see how things are going. That would be awesome. It's time to check it down and finish up this episode. Like we always do. Each week, listeners share the best rowing-related part of their week. Let's hear from a few folks. Hi, Rachel and Tara. Uh, this is Sue Kashelsky with Fleets of Gold Rowing. I am calling with a best part of my rowing week. So last week, my juniors team did 2K tests, and it's the first one we've done this year, the only one we're going to do this year, um, because training is a little weird this year. So I training has been kind of funky this winter, and I told the kids, you know, don't really expect much, just go into it and we're just going to see where everybody's at. And I was expecting everybody to maybe have maintained, but I had a whole bunch of kids PR and I was just so proud of my team um, and so proud that they had pushed themselves and gotten those PRs in spite of the fact that we had a really weird winter. So that is the best part of my rowing week. Thanks guys. Bye. Add your voice, call 240-390-6026 and leave a brief message with your name, club affiliation, and best rowing-related thing that happened to you this week. Or record a voice memo on your phone and send it to bestpart at steadystatenetwork.com. Well, that's it for today's episode of Steady State Podcast. New episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to subscribe and stay tuned. To see photos of Susanna, along with links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in the episode, check out the show notes on our website, steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast. Did you know that Steady State is more than a podcast? We've got virtual events happening every week that bring together the rowing community from across the country and around the world. Because we miss practices and we really miss post-practice coffee with teammates, you're invited to join Rachel and I for a 30-minute coffee chat every Friday, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Facebook Live and Instagram Live. Grab your favorite mug and join the conversation. And join us for Steady State Sundays every weekend on Zoom Ergos. During these 60-minute Steady State Erg workouts, we chat and provide cues to keep you motivated. Arrive warmed up, stay as long as you want, and stick around after to talk. We're also excited to be a media partner for a one-of-a-kind para-rowing global meetup series hosted by Seize the Oar Foundation. These free sessions are open to all para-rowing coaches, athletes, admins, and fans to talk, connect, and strategize for para-rowing success in 2021. To get the details and get involved in any of our events, visit steadystatenetwork.com slash events. When you join the Steady State Patreon community as a subscriber, you're supporting a new narrative in rowing, and a couple of your fellow rower entrepreneurs make it happen. Patrons get bonus content, swag, and early access. At Steady State Network, we believe wholeheartedly in the importance of inclusion at all levels and investing in rowers, coaches, and leaders who believe the same. Beginning in 2021, Support we receive from Patreon members will help provide coaching, coxing, and training education throughout the year. 
Find out more about our Patreon levels and benefits at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash Patreon. In two, let it run. One, two, let it run. <laughs>